We're in a, our series on 1 John. Today we're looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We're talking, it's going to be talking about victory over the world. It's going to be dealing with some important issues. These are things that, and we talked about this last week when we talked about how we interpret Scripture and understanding how Scripture is re- written by people who have an Eastern mindset, not a Western mindset like we have. We're part of the, growing up in the, in the Western civilization, and we have ways of doing things and ways of writing that are different from how Easterners would do that. And, and we see that in this book. There's a lot of repetition, which is very common in Eastern writing, especially ancient Near East writing. A lot of repetition, a lot of exploring of themes, just from a slightly different angle, multiple times. The reason is to get it dr- drilled into your brain by repetition, how important certain things are. All right? So John has been talking to them. Well, let me read 1 John 5, 1 through 5. It's on your sheet there. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John has been teaching them in this book about their identity. Who am I in Christ? Who am I? And he's been teaching them about this. Who are you? And not only what is my identity, but what are the implications of my identity? If these things are true, then what are the implications for how I live life now? For how I walk in this world? And he's been repeating some themes and expanding them. And, and identity has a responsibility. Because if I realized, you know what, I found something that is true. I must live it. I found out why I'm on this earth. Now I must live it. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, The end of life is not to be happy, nor to achieve pleasure and avoid pain, but to do the will of God, come what may. Come what may. I like that last part, come what may. He understood that the basic idea of identity in Christ is doing the will of God. And John is teaching them. He's been teaching them over and over and over that identity is not achieved. It's received. There's a huge difference there. Our world tells us to achieve identity. Achieve identity in various ways. But God says, no, you'll never, it, you'll, you'll never quite get it. It'll always be short. It's something you receive. It's given to you. And all those things that we can base our identity on that requires achievement, whether it's education or money or family or power or some sort of authority or, or the stuff you own or good looks or whatever it may be, it can be a whole bunch of different things for each one of us. All of those things, they become relentless taskmasters that demand more and more and more of us. And you can never achieve it. It never quite works. God says, you don't have to achieve it. Let me give it to you. It's received. Jose showed me one time that on our website, you can get the analytics of who who visits our website, who listens to the sermons that we post on the website, which are my sermons, so I was kind of interested in that. I'm thinking, yeah, who's listening? Apart from here, you know, who's listening? Because I know some of you aren't listening, but, you know, maybe somebody, if somebody takes the time to log into the website and actually bring up a sermon and play it, I think they're probably listening. And so we're talking about it in just different places. He said, look, if somebody in Philadelphia is listening, I'm like, yeah, somebody else. Oh, my son lives in Philadelphia. 
Yeah, it's not such a big deal. Yeah, he said, oh, look, somebody in Alabama's listening to you. I'm like, yeah. yeah. My mom lives in Alabama. Darn. And then it was Europe. Europe international. I have a brother that lives in Portugal. And he said, look, somebody listened to you in China. Sweet. Then I realized Chip Watson was in China that week. So just, just all of a sudden, I just realized I wanted to think I'm special, but I'm not. I'm not. Why? Because if I, if I want to be, if I want people to, to think so much of me, you know, to be, to be listened to internationally, to think that it means all that, what's happened? I, I, now I've hitched my wagon to a relentless taskmaster. And there will always be the need for more, and always be the need for more, and always be the need for more. And God says, that's, that's, that's not the way. That's not what I made you for. These things will all let you down. They'll crush you under the demands that they have for you to be happy. You want to be happy, you must do this and this and this. And they'll crush you with that. And so here John is teaching us what naturally results from a person placing their trust in Jesus Christ. The salvation that we have, our salvation, the first point on your sheet there, our salvation leads to serving others. What naturally results from me placing my trust in Jesus Christ? And it's, it's a process. We've talked about this a number of times. John has talked about this. It doesn't happen in an instant always. It, it's, it's a process in my life. But I will begin to be concerned about serving others. I will begin to think about that. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. All right, and he says, that's what's going to happen. You're going to start loving people, especially his children, especially the people of the body of Christ. Now, we need to get to just talk about something that's very basic. There's some things, you know, we all tend to agree on, but we don't always aren't always able to articulate very well. And so I want to talk about this word, believe. All right? What does it really mean? And, and belief and faith, they both come from the same root, root word in the Greek. Belief is to be persuaded that something is true, to trust it, and to act accordingly. Faith is very similar, but faith is always in the spiritual realm. Belief can be in all kinds of realms. You can believe that it will rain tomorrow. You've seen the forecast... You see what's coming. You trust the forecaster. He's been right before. She's been right before. And so what do you do? You make plans accordingly. Right? People say, let's have a picnic this day. And you go, well, you know what? The forecast is downpours. Maybe we should rethink that. And you do rethink it. And you adjust accordingly. Why? Because you believe it. Right? You believe it. Faith focuses more on the spiritual realm of belief. Now, when the Reformation happened and there was this great war over salvation and how it worked, you know, the, the Reformers were saying, uh, and I'd say war, it's not a war, but it was a huge disagreement, salvation by faith alone, and that the Catholic Church resisted on that, and there, was, there were viable issues on both sides, so that, so that what happened was the Reformers had to go back and think through, now what exactly are we meaning? And Martin Luther and some of the other ones, they did intensive study on what they meant when they talked about faith, when they talked about belief. And, and I want to mention that to you, because this is just important for us to kind of get a little taste of, all right? So don't, don't think it's going to be too deep, but it's going to be... And, and, the, the religious language of the day was Latin, and so these words, we have these, fa- these words that are fairly famous in theology anyways, that are 
Latin, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of explain them a little bit. But what they came up with was three ideas, okay? And the first one was noticia, all right? And that is this idea of believing in the data, believing in the information. It's, it's an intellectual awareness because you can't have faith in nothing. You can't believe in nothing. There has to be a content to that faith. So you have to believe something or you have to trust someone. And so when we say a person is saved by faith, some people will say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you're very sincere in your belief. And see, this, this, this says, no, there must be data. There must be a reason for the belief that is worth believing in. Because it matters profoundly what you believe. Because people can be sincerely wrong. Right? So that's the first one. The second one is a census. A census is intellectual assent. That's where that word assent comes from. I have to be persuaded of the truthfulness of the content. Because James even tells us, we did a study of James a while back, that, that demons believe. They believe in God. They believe in the person and the work of Christ. And they are not Christians. Because simply understanding that, when I use that word believe, I'm saying intellectually, they assent to that. They know that those are truthful statements. But it's more than that. The third part then is, we combine these, is fiducia. Now, this is a commitment. It's called, you'll hear, it's, that's, a, that's a transactional word. That's a, that's a monetary word. You'll talk about people having a, a, a fiduciary commitment. And what does that mean? They're committed to something. What it means biblically is I put my life in Jesus. I trust my life in Jesus. I have this sense of trust, this sense of confidence, this sense of commitment to him. I trust him and him alone for my salvation. And this is a crucial element because it's not just the intellectual and the mental, those parts we talked about before. It goes beyond. It goes to the heart and the will. I now make a decision so that my whole person is caught up in what we call faith. It involves just not just the data. It involves not just investigating the data so that I know the data is, I have a good, I have a good solid belief that the data is true. It is now saying I commit myself to that. I commit myself to it so that now I rest in it. I trust it. It becomes my life. And so this is what we mean when we talk about belief, when we talk about faith. So now if somebody says, well, what's faith? You can just rattle off these Latin words to them, and they won't know what you're talking about. So that, that will end that conversation. And I'm going to give you my definition of faith, even, even belief. And I want to give you a caveat before I do that. It's just mine. This isn't the gospel. You know, I'm, not, I'm nothing great. It's just as I've studied it. What is faith? It's a rational examination of the data. It is an intellectual evaluation of the implications of the data and a resulting commitment to what the data means to your life. Okay? It's understanding, it's evaluating the implications, and then it's committing yourself. That's that fiduciary part at the very end. Committing yourself to it. I am committed. When we, when we, um, when we take communion, Paul talks about communion. One of the parts of communion, he says, is, is, is that you are making a statement. This is who I am. When we talk about baptism, baptism is a statement from this moment on. I'm a follower of Christ. I am publicly declaring to everyone, this is who I am. That's that commitment in action. And when you do this, the Bible talks, that about, talks about that as being born again. 
and things change. Paul, Paul tells us you become a new creation. You will love the Father, the architect of that new creation. And he says, but if you love the Father, you've got to love his kids. You've got to love his other children. Now, when we talk about some of these things, these are pretty basic things. You know, what is belief? It's pretty basic. If I love God, I've got to love his kids. It's pretty basic. And, and, you know, sometimes I get people that say, I, I want to move past the basics. I want to get to the deep teachings. And I usually tell these people, this is the deep teachings. Love God and love the brethren. This is the deep teaching. People think these kind of teachings are shallow. Sha-la-la-la-lo. But they're not. That's my Lady Gaga imitation. Next I'll be singing Just Dance if you want to stay for that. Um, but this is the deep teaching. You can't go deeper than love God and love your neighbor. There's no, that's it, right? And too often, you know, we think things that are simple are easy and they're not that deep. It's not true. It's not true. He's telling us loving automatically leads to serving. If you love God, you will love his children. You will serve them. Again, you know, we talked about it. you can't serve all God's children. There's overwhelming needs, but he will at times impress upon you people he specifically wants you to love and serve. He will do that. And then you have to obey. The point is, we need to love and we need to be open to serve. And our willingness is the key. And, and I, I for personally, I pray this a lot. I just say, God, show me who you want me to talk to today. Show me who you want me to impact today. And then give me the courage to do it when you show me. Because sometimes when God shows me, it's not what I want to do, or it's inconvenient, or it could be a real trial for me. And so I have to pray also, give me the courage to do it when you show me. Because I know how I am. God can show me something or somebody, and I can find a million reasons why that's not a good idea. In, and how audacious, right in the face of God, I don't think you realize. You know, and I just sometimes wonder if God stifles a laugh when he talks to me. Salvation, what happens? It leads to serving others. Second, it leads to obeying God. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. All right? And so there's this progression here. In verse 1, he says you need to love the children of God. Now in verse 2, he says, how do we know we're loving the children of God? He's how, here's how we know. Are we keeping his commands? Because his commands are all about people. God doesn't make commands just for the fun of making commands. There are reasons for it. When our kids were little, our oldest son... Um, you know, he was, he was this type A personality, and, and he was a pretty bright kid. And so he was always questioning things, always questioning why we said things, why we did things, why we had certain rules in, in our household. And finally, one time, he was in the eighth grade, maybe the ninth grade. I sat him down. I said, listen, Derek, here's the deal. I'm your parent. I love you. I love you. Like, I've never loved anything before. I love you so much. I love your, your sisters. I love, I love you. And so my, I'm not taking delight in making your life difficult. 
I want to make your life easy. I want to make your life not be a burden. But I know sometimes you might make decisions that I don't think are the best decision. I want to help you with that. And I told him, now look, if you think something that I say is ridiculous or even stupid, you can tell me. Just don't use the word stupid or ridiculous. You know, just do it in, in a legitimate way, in a way, you know, that recognizes who I am in your life. But if you think it's wrong, you can tell me, Dad, I think it's wrong, and here's why. And I, and I told him, and if I agree with you, I'll back off. I'll change it. If you can convince me, I'll change it. I'm willing to work with you on this. I'm not omnipotent. I said, but here's the deal. These commands are for you. They're not for me. I said, Derek, I don't get any pleasure out of telling you you can't do this. I get no pleasure out of that. I get no joy out of that. I only get pleasure out of seeing you flourish. And he was old enough that he was like, hmm, okay. You know, it's like I could tell inside he's going, you're not as stupid as I thought you were. And, and, and we worked after that, and it worked. And God gives us commands. Why? Because he's interested in our flourishing. He's interested in us being who he created us to be. He's interested in using us to further his kingdom, to reach people for Jesus Christ all over the world. He wants to use us. And so, how do we know that we're loving? We keep his commandments. And it's a circle that just feeds off of each other because what is God's goal for us just to make us more religious no he's making us back to what we were made to be he's making us human again totally human salvation is the reversal of what sin has done that's why Paul says you're a new creation you're made new you're restored to what you were meant to be now, we know, you know, we, Scripture tells us all the time, this is a process. It gets worked out. It's fits and starts. Sometimes you blow it and you move back. The, you know, you go, ah. And, 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 but the point is, is God is moving us that way to be fully human the way he made us. So what will identify you as a fully human being who has been redeemed, as a human being in the process of becoming more like Jesus? What will show that? And in the Gospels, in the rest of the New Testament, there are these commands that when the power of the Holy Spirit is working in us, we are able to follow and we reflect our Savior. Even the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us all these principles to live by, even if the particular command is not in effect. Like the sin offering, an offering for sin. Jesus Christ fulfilled that. But when we go back to the Old Testament and we read about the sin offering, it reminds us of Jesus Christ fulfilled that. This is, how, this is how bad sin was. This is how bad sin can be. Jesus Christ became the final offering to take care of it once and for all. And so the principle is still there and still true because God wants us, he wants you to love better in our family here of believers. But even with our enemies, he wants us to love better. He wants us to live with the open hand, not holding tightly onto what I think is mine, mine, mine. He wants us to listen and value people rather than demonizing them. He wants to see people not as objects to be used or as problems to be solved, but as individuals who, Scripture tells us, are created in the image of God. 
what an incredible pedestal God places human beings on compared to the rest of creation. We are created in the image of God. We deserve, because of that, simply because of that, we deserve to be cherished and loved. In James, we studied the book of James a while back. In James chapter 2, he has this, I'll just read it to you, it's not on your sheets. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you treat him special, he says, or if if you show the poor man, you treat them poorly, He says, you have discriminated among yourselves. You have become judges and you have judged people, he says, and that's not your right. In Leviticus, this kind of comes out of Leviticus. In Leviticus, God says he treats all people the same. He judges all people, the same standard of judgment, the same treatment for all people, rich or poor. There's no favoritism. All people. He says, follow that example. And James is telling us, I have this command. It's based, on the, it's based on love your neighbor. So if you're going to love God, you have to love your neighbor. And it starts all the way from the very beginning. And it's developed all the way through the whole Bible. So God calls upon us. He says, I want you to show your identity in a particular way. How you treat people. No favoritism. And it's a hard thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do. You know, working at a church, you always have this sense of, boy, and, and uh, just confession's good for the soul, okay. Boy, if we had more money, we could do more. We could reach more, right? Okay, so then someone comes into your church. This is a pastoral problem right here. Someone comes into your church, and you find out, oh, this person is rich through what they do or whatever. You find out. It is so easy to say, hey, how you doing? Wow. Would you like me to get you a cup of coffee? Uh, and, and, and a lot of you are going, you have never done that for me. You're exactly right. I've never done that for you. Never done The only person I've done that for is my wife. That's it. Just one out of 400. But you, you're, you're tempted to treat, as a pastor, you're tempted to treat this person a little different, a little better, to be a little nicer to them. Why? Because they hold a key that could unlock what you feel is a need. And God says, God says, I mean, this is to me. I'm not preaching to any of you anymore. I'm just sharing. This is to me. Bob, don't you do that. Because as soon as you've done that, you've judged. You become, you're taking my job. You're saying, God, step aside. I got this one. I'm going to make this happen. You know, that's what happens. And so he says, this is absolutely wrong. This, this goes against what I created you for. I created you to show no favoritism. And so if you do that, you are absolutely shaking your fist in my face and saying, God, leave me alone on this one. And so I can't. I can't do that. Now, let's just spread this around. Think of the times you've treated people differently based on how you feel about them. They're not like me, so I don't like them. I don't understand them, so I don't like them. They don't look like me, so I think certain things of them. They don't talk like me. They don't have the same values I have. God says, that's ab- if you are a follower of Christ, that's absolutely forbidden. 
because you denigrate my name when you treat people differently like that. And this hits hard because it's where we live. Our culture is all about that. And again, I want to say this. God says, he doesn't say you have to like them. That's what I love about Scripture. You can't make yourself like someone you don't like. But he says you do have to treat them with love. Because you can do that. That's an act of the will. All right? And then he makes this astounding statement. I mean, it's astounding to me. It may not be astounding to you, but think about it. He says, and his commands are not burdensome. Now, you think about this in this passage. He says, by loving God, uh, in verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. If, if we had a little thing where I just said, hey, you never do this little thing, you know, people do these kind of little things. I'm going to yell God's commands. You yell the first thing that comes to your mind, right? I don't think anybody here go, not burdensome, <laughs> right? Right? It, it, that's not what I would think of because... Man, I got to be honest. When I think of God's command, I think, oh, it's kind of burdensome. I believe, like, kind of burdensome. <laughs> you know, there's, there's nobody on Jeopardy saying, hey, I'll take not burdensome for 400. No, because it's not what we think of when we think of God's commands. But now, let me push back on that a little bit. Because God, John doesn't say here, not difficult. He doesn't say that. Now, there's a big difference between burdensome and difficult. They can be related, but they are not the same. So what is burdensome? So I just looked it up a little bit. This word for burdensome, it's the idea of a, of a very heavy burden, that a burden that impedes you. It stops you. It slows you down. It slows down progression. It slows down growth. And the key to it, it leads to despair. All right? burdensome has inherent in it the idea that it leads to despair. And so that's important. I one time I saw a documentary and they were talking about jobs that were just, you know, these kind of jobs that are mind-numbing. Some of you may have that job, type job, mind-numbing, just deadening. And they were talking to a guy. He worked on an assembly line. And all he did was tighten like two different bolts a thousand times a day. But the key, the problem is, you know, you can just go brain dead and do that. The problem was those two bolts were two of the anchors for car seats, for children's car seats when you hook to them, so that he had to stay mentally alert. He can't miss one because it could kill a kid, right? And I'm sure for the car company, they're like, no, actually, it means it's just a bad lawsuit. That's the way they're thinking. But he can't miss one. So he does something that is mind-numbingly repetitive, but he has to stay alert. Like he wasn't allowed to listen to music. He wasn't allowed to distract himself in any way. And they were asking about it, and he said, it's mind-numbing. It's soul-killing. He said, I, I don't care that I'm making good money. I've got to get a different job because this is killing me. Now, Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why? Because God's commands lead to life, just what we were talking about. God's commands grow you. God's commands facilitate change in your life that is good. So he's saying they're not burdensome. It doesn't mean they're easy, but they don't lead to despair. And he's saying that's the key. God's commands don't lead to despair. 
They lead to life. They lead to joy. They lead to purpose. They lead to meaning. And in the midst of them sometimes, in the midst of the difficulty, you don't necessarily clearly see the joy, the meaning, the purpose that's coming. But God says, trust me, it's there. Trust me on this one. You see, because our world, our world tells us that freedom is the ability to do whatever you want to do. But you think about that. A person with money and power can do whatever they Whatever they desire to do, but they can still be a slave to addictions, a slave to unhealthy desires, a slave to a wrong belief. And God says that freedom is being able to do the right thing, the freedom to do what God says is best, the freedom to say no to unhealthy desires. And we have to understand in the midst of serving God and serving others, this ultimately changes us. This is the path to more joy. This is the path to bearing fruit. This is the path to experiencing God more deeply in my life and changing from the inside out, not outward changes, inward changes that work their way out. And we don't do it for that reason. We do it out of love and obedience to God. But those are the effects of living the way God calls us to live. I was reading a while back a couple of studies that came out um, it was the Psychiatric Journal, and uh, they were talking about how they, they were seeing, it was a study on happiness and where does it come from and those types of things, and they were saying that happiness is most seen in people who serve others. People who are involved in serving others tend to be the happiest people, whether they're Christians or not. Why? Because God says serving others leads to joy. That works. It's like gravity. It works. Whether you're a Christian or not, it still works because it's God's plan. And it's God's way of living. So they find out that people who are involved in service, involved in community, involved in those types of things, they're happier. So then what they did is they said, well, we got to go get people and tell them, you need to serve and get into community because it's going to make you happy. But the problem was that when people started serving because they wanted to be happy, it didn't work because they were serving for the wrong reason. And people who tried to get involved in things so that it would make them feel better about themselves, it didn't work in the long run. And so for us, following God, obeying God, it leads to joy. But I don't do it to get to joy. I do it because God is good. Because God is God. And he tells me, this is what is best. So I trust him, and that's the byproduct. But if I live for the byproduct, I screw the whole thing up. Plus, we have the unique joy of knowing that the things we do for him last for eternity. See, that's the difference between somebody who's serving and they get some joy out of it. When it's done for him, when it's done in the name of Jesus, now it lasts for eternity. There are eternal consequences to what we do. I saw a pitch the other day on the, the computer. A company was saying, "Help, come join us. Help us change the world. And I thought, well, that's a good cause. But think about this. God is saying to you, he's saying to you, I want to use you. I want you to be involved in my kingdom. I want you to be involved in changing the world, not just this world, but the world to come. That's incredibly greater than just working for something here and now. Working for something here and now is not wrong. I don't want to belittle it. 
But I want to tell you something, that when we follow God, when we live for God, when we obey God's commands, we're involved in something that lasts forever. You will impact people's lives, and you will see them over and over and over again for eternity and be reminded of what happened there. Years ago, I, I, I know it probably doesn't surprise you, but I have a black belt in karate. I got, okay, this is true. <laughs> Darn it, I have to actually say that. Okay, uh, years ago, I was working with teenagers, and I, was, I started, I wanted to teach them karate, so I figured I ought to learn something, you know? So I took karate so I could teach all these teenagers karate and, and, and have something that we did. And um, so I just went through it, and I, and I got my black belt. I'm the world's worst black belt. I'll tell you that right now. Um, I tend to be the world's worst at a number of things, you know, pastoring, black belt, all these things. And, and uh, I can't do... Any of the stuff I could do when I was much younger. But there, I took this class, it was, and, and there was a couple of guys that we, we saw each other four days a week for an hour and a half, hour, hour and a half, uh, stretching and exercising and moves and breaking things and doing stuff and hitting each other. And uh, they found out, you know, because at one point, why are you taking this class? This guy goes, I want to be able to defend myself, you know, and I need to get exercise. And I said, I want to teach these other teenagers, these dopey teens I work with, I want to teach them karate. And they're all like, why would you want to teach them? I said, well, I work at a church, and you know, this is all part of working with teens and talking to them about Christ. This is one more thing they love, so I'm doing it. And I got mocked. I mean, you know how it can be. I just got, oh, oh, the pastor, you know. And so sometimes, sometimes we would, sometimes we would spar, right? So I'd, I'd pop a guy, you know. I'm thinking, yeah, ding-a-ling is your belt, you know. And he'd be like, oh, the pastor hit me, you know. And it would just, it would just be like, you're so weak. And they just mocked me. And it was fine. It didn't bother me. We were friends. We laughed, you know. But uh, the whole time it was a, uh, and then, and then about. Um, Oh, man, about six years ago, I get a phone call. It's been 30 years, 25 years. And I get a call, and this guy goes, hey, man, you remember me? And I said, dude, your name sounds familiar. He goes, we took karate together, buddy. Hey, karate, you were the pastor, remember? And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to need a click. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't. And I said, oh, yes, man, how are you? Um, and he goes, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? He goes, I'm a pastor. And I thought, oh, here it goes. No, you're not. You're just yanking my chain. You know, I could feel it coming. He goes, no, dude, I'm really ser serious. I always watched you. You never turned on us. You never, you never, you know, you never barked back. You never mocked us. You just were always the same person. And he said, I couldn't help thinking about that. And he said, 10 years ago, somebody else talked to me and I asked Christ to be my savior. And now I got this little church and, and I want you to help me. And I told him, no. After all he'd done, oh, no, no, no. No, <laughs> that's terrible. No. So I said, of course, dude, that is so cool. Oh, man. He goes, you know, we were always watching you. And I didn't think that. Let me tell you something. There are people watching you. They're watching you and you have no clue. Because sometimes they're the ones that are merciless towards you. But they're watching you. And someday God says, you know, my word never returns void. 
never comes back empty, always accomplishes what I send it out for. And when you speak wisdom, when you speak love, when you, when you speak principles and words from the word of God, God says that will not, this, that's not powerless. That has the ability to change eternity. Now, I want you to know something, because this can sound like, oh, Bob, you were such a great witness. Okay, I'm not always a great witness. There were other times where people mocked me, and I, you know, came back at them. But this one time, I, God gave me the, the grace to not, and, and he worked through it. So, when we have the proper perspective, let me tell you something. His commands are not burdensome. Because I'll be honest with you, towards the beginning of those classes in Taekwondo, I was having to love my enemies. That's exactly what it felt like. Because I didn't like them. Now, over time, over the, we were doing this, we did this for like five, four years, five years. Over time, we became friends. But at the beginning, it, it was difficult. But it was not a burden because it yielded fruit. All right, our salvation leads to serving others. Our salvation leads to obeying God. And our salvation leads to overcoming the world. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So another basic idea, what's the world? And he's talked about this before, so I'm summing up some of this. But one guy I read was saying this world, this world system that's around it, it's like a, it's like a form of cosmic peer pressure, right? It's this idea that it, it tells us what we should value. It has values. It tells us what we should believe. It tells us how we should conduct ourselves, how we should behave. It tells us all these things, and invariably they tend to be contrary to God and to his values. That's what he's talking about there when he's talking about overcoming the world. It's, it's a type of peer pressure. You know, and we all know what peer pressure is. We think it somehow only happened when we were in middle school and high school, right? When I was in middle school, and it was pretty harmless. I mean, I was in middle school. I wanted to get a picture, but I decided it would be too embarrassing for you to see a picture of me with bell bottoms and a Nehru jacket on. Um, but I thought I was pretty cool when I was in the eighth grade, sporting those wide flares and that collar that came up real tight like a clerical collar. I thought I was all that. No girls would go out with me, but I thought I was all that. But as adults, it's a little more insidious. And we are immersed in it. It's all around us. There is this temptation to treat God as if he does not matter. You can believe in him. But to act like he doesn't affect my daily life. And I think sometimes it's good for us to think, how different would my life be if I were not a Christian? There's this temptation to believe that we are the ultimate authority. I'm in charge. I'm the captain of my fate. There's this temptation for us to, be, us to be the ultimate decider in what we do and what we don't do. And it leads to terrible and hideous behavior when we follow what this world tells us we should value. It leads to uh, treating people as objects, objectifying people, especially women. It leads to sexual harassment and, and, and assault. It leads to racism. It leads to materialism so that things become more important than people. It leads to selfishness and narcissism. It's all about me. That's where it leads. When we, have, when we give in to this temptation to treat God as if he really doesn't matter. And John has been hammering them over and over again with what is your identity in Christ 
We are born of God. And when we are born of God, he says, then this process, we begin overcoming the world, overcoming this system that is in opposition to God. And our victory is our faith in God, he says. God changes us now so that we go against the system. We overcome that peer pressure. We delight in God rather than ignoring him. We discover that obedience to his ways are satisfying because his ways are good. We learn to love well. And what happens when we do that? We're going against the flow. And it starts when you're born again. It starts when you're, you're, you, you become fully alive. You overcome the world. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I came to give them life and to give it, you know, it's translated more abundantly, but the word really means life at a different level. And, and, and we tend to go, oh, life at a different level, higher, better. No, the Christian life, let me tell you, the lows of the Christian life can be, be lower than what other people experience. And the highs of the Christian life can be higher than what other people experience. What does that mean? I can remember one time working with a teenager, and she came in, and she says, my dad, my dad, I'm worried about my dad. He's not a Christian. And she was torn up about this. I mean, it was just ripping her at at an incredibly deep level. And I was thinking, you know, if she wasn't a Christian, this wouldn't even be an issue. She wouldn't even care. But she's experiencing a low, a depth of despair because of her love for her father and his eternal fate. And that's only what Christians feel. And then knowing when he became a Christian, the excitement and the joy that she had. Why? That's only what Christians feel. You see, when Jesus says, I came, I came to give you this life at a whole new level, he's not promising, you know, pie in the sky by and by. He's saying, man, you're going to hit some lows that are some tough lows only because you know me. And you're going to hit some highs that are some incredible highs only because you know me. But ultimately, through it all, those lows, those highs, and everything in between will affect people for eternity. He who has the Son has life. He's saying, you've got this life now. My favorite story of this, faith in action. I, I love the, the Jewish idea of faith, which goes very much along with what we've gone over. Jewish idea of faith was that not just intellectual ascent. If you really believe something, it had to change your actions. It had to change how you live. Because if it didn't change how you live, you didn't really believe it. And I, I want to, it's a t- story you may have heard. It's from Mark chapter 5. So there's a large crowd that has followed Jesus and is pressed all around them. And a woman is nearby who has been bleeding for 12 years. She has suffered greatly under this. Many people have tried to cure her and failed. And she has spent her money trying to find a cure. But instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now why? Just a little bit of background on this. Why is this so important? Okay, first of all, according to the Jewish law now, she's unclean. She has some sort of disease. First, what does that mean? Okay, she can't, I mean basic, she can't cook dinner for her husband because if she touches it, it's unclean. If she sits in a chair, her husband, her kids, they can't sit in that chair because she touched it, it's unclean. So what happened to unclean people? They had to get pushed out, even though it hurt dearly sometimes. They had to get pushed out because they infected people. 
So when you had diseases like leprosy, they had to stay at a distance because it was contagious. And so you have a something. This woman has something for 12 years. They don't really understand what it is, but out of fear that it's contagious, she will be declared unclean. So that when she walks around people, which is what everyone declared unclean had to do, uh, lepers, everyone, they had to walk around, and if there's people nearby, they had to say, unclean, unclean, so that people, oh, 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 people stay their distance. So they had to announce to the world their uncleanness so that people would get away from them. Imagine your life that way. All right, so this woman, this is what's happened to her. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched the hem of his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Now, what's the thought process that's going on there? Here's what's going on. Um, there was a tradition in those days that you will know the Messiah because a thing called the tzitzi. And what that is, is on their prayer shawl at the four corners, there's a little string of three, three uh, strands woven together with knots, and they all meant, you know, knots meant certain parts of the Bible and all this kind of stuff. And they said, you'll know the Messiah because his tzitzi will heal. Now, this wasn't biblical, it's not in the Old Testament. It's a tradition, like a wives' tale. It's something that people believed. They just thought the, the Messiah, he'll be so powerful. Even the little tzitzi hanging off there will be powerful enough to heal you. So when you read in your Bible, in this one it says cloak, and the other two versions that it's in, it says the hem of his garment. It's not the hem of his garment. The word's a very particular word. It means that tzitzi. This is what it looks like. I forgot I had this. All right, you see these three men. These are Orthodox Jews, and you see the two white prayer shawls there, at the back corners, there's a string hanging. That's their tzitzi. They have four of them. There's two in the back and two in the front. The other guy has it, but it's probably covered by his coat. He has to have it, so I know it's there. All right? So that's what we're talking about. So she comes up, and it says she comes up behind him in the crowd. What does she do? She sneaks up. Why? because she's supposed to yell unclean and everybody will move away from her. So now she's defeated her purpose of coming up behind Jesus. So she's come to the realization that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. She has placed her faith in him and then she realizes, if I have placed my faith in him, all I gotta do is touch that seat. See, I don't have to bother him. So I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna sneak up what's happened. She has examined the data. She has ascertained the truthfulness of the data. Now she's thinking through, how does my life change because I believe this? Here's how my life changes if I just touch that. Can you imagine the despair and the hopelessness that has been a part of her life all this time? Even now, the fear. Because if she comes sneaking up and somebody goes, hey, and they recognize her, all right, they're allowed to beat her with sticks, not with their hands, because now they'd be unclean. They're allowed to beat her with sticks because she disobeyed the unclean law. And you have to understand it from their point. When you're talking about contagious diseases that can kill you, that's important that you obey the unclean law because you could kill us. How selfish. So what does she do? She sneaks up quietly. I mean, this is what a powerful story. If I just touch, literally, the tzitzi, I will be healed. 
Immediately, she touched it. Her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. All right? So, big crowd. This lady comes, you know, kind of getting through. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Bink. Right? That's how I imagine it anyways. Not necessarily how it happened. But I'm imagining she kind of, it says she came up from behind. So right away, you know, she's, she's having to sneak it. And Jesus at once realized that power had flowed from him. He turned around and he asked, who touched, who touched me? Right? And now you got the, the disciples. I love these guys, right? I love these guys. Can you imagine them? They're like, eh, there's about a thousand people that just touch you, dude. So they say, you see the people crowding against you? <laughs> Can you imagine that? It's got to be Peter. I'm just thinking it's got to be Peter. It's like, Jesus, are you seeing? Are you seeing the people who are jammed up against you? And yet, because this is the condescending part, and yet you ask, who touched me? Don't you think Jesus sometimes just want to go, bam, just lay one out. That's, aren't you glad I'm not Jesus? Because that's what would happen. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Now, what does that mean? That means she touched and she booked. She started moving. I got to get out of here. Especially when he goes, hey. She's like, row, row. You know? And so she's out. She's out. <laughs> it's in the Greek. It's the Greek for rocus, rocus. Um, and so Jesus kept looking. I'm, I'm just destroying this story. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at her feet, trembling in fear. Why? I could die. They can beat me. They can hit me with sticks and rocks, and I may die. I, can you, I just got healed. And so she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He's, what is he saying? That faith, when you recognize that I was the Messiah and you figured out how should I act because this man is the Messiah, she, he says, bam, you're as good as healed from that moment on. You followed through with this stuff, but I'm telling you, that moment of faith where you analyze the data and you decided, well, what does this mean? And it is true. Therefore, because it's true, how do I act? He says, that's what did it. That's what did it. She risks it all to come into the presence of Jesus, even the possibility of being harmed. Even after, even after being healed, she falls at his feet in pure fear. And she believes, and God works. Our faith has to involve action. Because what happened to her is still happening today. Your faith has begun the process of overcoming the world in your life. The victory is won. He's saying, now go live this victory out in this world. Remember your identity, who you are. Your uncleanness has been healed. And now you are free to live in this way. Go and do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, that it is powerful. Father, I say, I'm just amazed something that was written 2,000 years ago applies to us in our lives right now. In 2019, on the peninsula, how we live is influenced by this document. 
Father, help us to live it well. Help us to honor and glorify you in our life. We thank you for the joy and the purpose and the meaning that comes from that. But Lord, ultimately, it is because you are God that we serve. And it's in your son's blessed name that we pray. Amen. We're going to take an offering. And I want to say, if you're